Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous. I am one of your hosts, Bill D'Alessandro, and today we have an absolutely killer episode for y'all. Uh, we had Heather Anderson on the episode from Live Oak Bank. Heather is one of the highest volume SBA lenders in the country, and I had the chance to nerd out with her for almost an hour on the ins and outs of how you do deal structuring when using really any loan, but especially an SBA loan. Uh, this is super relevant if you're a searcher or any business buyer that wants to know what you can and can't do with an SBA loan. We talked about what you do, everything goes wrong, uh, and you have to do workout on an SBA loan, how you can get more comfortable with the personal guarantee. We talked about downside scenarios, upside scenarios, uh, some really, I learned a whole bunch of new stuff about how to structure a seller note, uh, I could go on and on. I think you're going to really dig this episode. Um, but first, if you could, please hop on your pot, your Apple I iTunes or anywhere your podcasts are sold. Leave us a five-star review uh, if you like this episode. Uh, it really helps us get the word out. So without further ado, I think y'all are going to love this episode with Heather Anderson. Hey, Michael here. Want to talk to you about today's sponsor for the episode, uh, which is cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, so cloud bookkeeping is actually run by my neighbor, Charlie. So I've met him in person and uh, can attest that he's a real human being and a good person. Uh, and what cloud bookkeeping does is offer a full suite of bookkeeping services uh, all in the cloud uh, for you around QuickBooks and other technologies that you're using as a small business owner. Uh, so if you're interested in getting the bookkeeping part of running a business off of your plate and focusing on running your business, uh, Charlie and his team are one to call. Um, they can put together a bunch of other stuff in terms of helping you manage and grow your business besides just bookkeeping, um, sophisticated reporting, uh, definitely helping you get your QuickBooks online set up in the right way, uh, and a number of things around payroll as well. So uh, definitely know them and recommend them if you want want to find out more about cloud bookkeeping, um, you can go to their website at cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, reach out to Charlie. I know many of you have uh, and see if he can help you uh, make your running your business easier and more fun by uh, letting them help with a lot of the bookkeeping solutions. So, uh, and when you call mention this podcast, uh, it would help us uh, and help Charlie know uh, that we're supporting him as well. So thanks a bunch and cloudbookkeeping.com uh, as the sponsor for today's episode. All right, Heather, thank you for being back on Acquisitions Anonymous. I think you are our first, maybe third time guest. Is that right? Third time. Yes. Thank you for having me again. Awesome. Well, every time I want to know what's up in the world of SBA lending, I can't think of anyone better. Um, so I'm psyched to have you back. Can you just remind our listeners kind of who you are and what you do? Yeah, I uh, I am the co-director of a vertical at Live Oak Bank that focuses on search fund lending. But what that really means is we we do acquisitions. We finance acquisitions all over the country uh, to search funds, both self-funded, traditionally funded, and independent sponsors as well. Awesome. So you are uh, my go-to source for anything SBA. Um, if you're a search fund, if you're doing an SBA loan, uh, Heather is going to be want to be one of your first calls, assuming you fit into her kind of lending box, um, which I think is pretty broad. Is it not, Heather? It is pretty broad. Yes. And and I'm with Live Oak Bank, which is the number one SBA lender, and we have about 36 industry verticals. So we ha also have a lot of industry-specific niches we can kind of introduce you into if you happen to find a deal in one of those. Okay. Awesome. So I am going to very selfishly pick your brain about all kinds of things today uh, that's going on. We've agreed to do, to start this episode with sort of a, a lightning round mini interview, market update. Uh, Heather's going to tell us kind of a lot has changed over the last six months in the lending market and the acquisitions market. She's going to talk about how she sees it from a lending perspective. Uh, and then we're going to cap it off with a deal uh, at the end of an e-commerce deal, which I think is pretty fun. Um, so to start, Heather, I'd love it if you could just kind of catch us up. We had you on. It's We're recording this in mid-October uh, 2022. A lot has happened. You know, the Fed has raised rates significantly. There's all this talk of recession. You know, are deals still getting done? Is it totally locked up? What's it like out there? It is not locked up. So that is the, the first thing. Deals are getting done. And uh, and uh, fourth quarter is our busiest quarter historically. And that's still happening. We are very, very busy. Uh, I'm hearing other SBA lenders at other banks are also seeing the same thing. So the good news is deals are still happening. What What's different um, that I've noticed is that they're, they tend to be a little bit higher quality deals. Um, so I think maybe uh, buyers are being a little more selective. 
uh, and they are pursuing those deals that uh, that have the right characteristics, the companies that have the right characteristics. In general, the deals that I'm working on are also on average a little bit bigger. So um, I'm, I'm looking at deals where uh, they're eight and nine million dollar enterprise value and they're still going with SBA financing. So a little more equity, a uh, little bit larger deal, which also tends to be a safer company, you know, larger tends to be safer. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a, I call it a flight to quality uh, with buyers. And and I also, I, I just wonder if um, the conditions that we're facing are bringing some of the quality sellers to the market. You know, I, I can't prove that, but it sort of feels like maybe that's beginning to happen, something that we've expected to happen for a long time, just given the demographics of the founders. Is is the demographic kind of, I've heard it called like the silver tidal wave, like the baby boomers wanting to retire. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about market conditions bringing high quality assets or is there more to it? I think that's it. You know, uh, we've been following that, uh, that uh, data point for many years now. And according to Barlow Research, we're now at, uh, if you look at companies with less than 10 million in revenue, uh, 47% of them are controlled by a founder who is 65 or older. And that num- that percentage has been increasing for the last 10 years that I followed the, the statistic. So it's still increasing, meaning it's everyone's still getting older. So I would say the silver tsunami has not has not quite crested yet, but maybe we're getting there. And uh, and I think maybe the economic conditions are bringing some of those sellers who were willing to wait it out another year, another two years. Maybe they're looking at the situation saying, no, maybe now is the time I, I'm tired and I don't really want to go through a, a recession and a, and a high rate environment uh, on top of everything else. Yeah. Okay. So you just mentioned the two key words that I really want to key in, recession and high rate environment, right? So you are a lender. And when I think of like times to do a leverage deal, I do not think of recession and high rate environment as a great time to do a leverage buyout transaction. So uh, obviously the Fed has raised rates significantly. I think the benchmark rate is in the mid threes now, um, which means your typical, uh, like what's, I don't want to paint you in a box here. Like what's like your median spread for an SBA loan? Like roughly. Sure. Uh, so we're, so the median is really prime wall street, prime plus two. That's sort of your middle of the road. There are rates lower than that. There are rates higher than that for a variety of reasons, but that's where you're going to generally fall. And prime is right now at, I believe six and a quarter. And uh, we're probably expecting seven uh, by the beginning of November at the next fed meeting. Uh, so prime will move when the fed moves at, at the same amount. So uh, you figure we're probably going to have a rate increase in November and probably another one after that. Um, I'm telling folks to model maybe a 10 to 11% interest rate for now. Okay. So if I, my memory is right, I think prime was closer to three uh, at the beginning of the year. So we're talking about the interest rate on an SBA loan has gone from five to 6% to, you know, nine to 11% ish in under a year. Um, and on a, on a long amortization loan, a 10 year SBA loan, I think so much, a large portion of your payment is interest. So while, you know, the math is more complicated than I'm about to make it seem, your payment has roughly doubled. Um, I mean, roughly, right? Or, or gone up significantly, uh, because interest rates have roughly doubled, um, since January. I would imagine that makes it harder to pay a big number, borrow as much, service that debt. Uh, are you seeing, you know, percentage of debt to equity change over the last six months? Are you seeing valuations come down to compensate? How has that big increase in rates affected the deals? Yeah, so it hasn't quite doubled the the uh, payment because we're talking about a ten year amortization on these deals. So it's it's still increased it, um, not minimizing that, but it hasn't quite doubled it because you you are paying a lot of these payments towards principal. the The first distinction I want to make is. Don't think in terms of real estate um, at, when you think in terms of investing or leveraging a small business acquisition. It's very different. Um, so the key uh, and the, the the largest driver in whether you're making a good investment in a small business or not really is the growth in the EBITDA that you are able to ultimately achieve or not. It's really not about the interest rate that uh, and the and the interest expense that you have along the way. Uh, if you look at your ROIC or your MOIC models, you'll see that that's true. So I, I think what's happening is 
Um, when someone finds a good deal, you know, a quote unquote, you know, where they see that opportunity to grow, they see something they can professionalize or open new sales channels, whatever the plan may be, uh, they're not as worried about the interest cost. It's just not a big impact on their overall picture. So I think that's what we're seeing happen. Okay. So the deals you're seeing are, have wide enough debt service coverage that they don't need you know, rates to stay where they are. It's not that close to the trees anyway. Right. And that's a really important point. So we, at in my group, we have always underwritten our loans with at least a 1.5 DSCR going in. So we've always been at that other end of the scale. We've never wanted to be aggressive and have a really skinny margin, even before rates started rising. So, so absolutely, when you underwrite a deal now at 10 and 11%, and you're still getting to that 1.5, you have a pretty good margin. Um, So you have that cushion. We also underwrite with a seller note. So the other thing to think about in terms of debt coverage and being safe with a deal is is having a subordinated seller note behind the SBA or the senior debt. What will happen if that business uh, hits a difficult time, either because of interest rates or recession or whatever it may be, that the payments to the seller note will actually get suspended rather than simply defaulting on the senior debt. And that suspending of seller note payments is is agreed to because it's subordinate to the to the senior. So so you've got, you know, the debt coverage multiple is your first kind of line of defense of kind of having a margin for error. And your second is having a good seller note. Maybe you need a larger seller note um, in a in a deal that you're a little more worried about the future on. Um, you know, those are the ways to kind of structure so that you're safe. So I want to come back to this point about seller note because I think it's an important tool. Uh, for buying businesses in this environment. Um, but you mentioned a 1.5 debt service coverage ratio using very round numbers quickly. Can you just explain what that is if somebody know, doesn't know what that is? Yes, it is adjusted cash flow. So uh, free cash flow of the business, net income, maybe we'll add back depreciation, adjust some salaries, whatever makes sense, um, over total pro forma debt payments. So pro forma debt payments are going to be your SBA loan payments and your seller note payments. So you want that cash flow to be one and a half times or more greater than those payments. So for example, if a business is cash flowing $1.5 million, you don't want to see debt payments, meaning principal plus interest of more than a million dollars a year. Right. Um, right. So I would think, you know, if that sounds like you're saying that's always been, you know, the bank's kind of margin of safety and that you haven't increased that in this environment, right? No, we haven't. So if you haven't increased it, I would think, you know, a deal being financed, you know, all else being equal, if interest rates are up, right? If you were financing right up against that 1.5 debt service coverage at a lower, in a lower rate environment, and now you're trying to finance up against it in a higher rate environment, uh, you know, one of two things kind of has to happen. Either valuation has to come down or the seller's got to put more equity in. Uh, which do you see happening more? Well, the valuation does have to come down, um, perhaps, um, and and or the the buyer does need to bring in more equity. So I guess we look at it as le- there's several levers to pull. So the valuation piece, let's take that one first. If it was kind of a plain vanilla company that didn't really have a lot of moats, it didn't have a lot of you know um, great qualities that uh, that you know make it really stand out from the crowd. Well, then maybe the valuation needs to come down. You know, maybe that's the those are the deals that are sort of on the bubble, on the margin where maybe they're just not worth as much now. Now, on the other hand, if you have a company that has great characteristics, uh, maybe they have recurring revenue at a very high percentage, very low customer churn um, and they're positioned well. This is another thing that's important right now. They're positioned well in their industry for tough economic times. Maybe they're counter cyclical or they've got some positioning that that looks really favorable. Their valuation didn't go down just because interest rates went up. Um, so so it really depends on the company that we're looking at. So if it was something that was kind of financed at the margin anyway, right up against 1.5, the, the valuation has to come down. And the reason the valuation has to come down for listeners is because there has to be less debt on it, right? If the debt is more expensive, you have to put less on it because the cash flow of the business hasn't changed in order to maintain that ratio. But you're saying it sounds like the best businesses aren't even close to that 1.5 that service coverage ratio. So those valuations don't have to come down. Well, that and, uh, you know, just how I would value those, those better characteristics doesn't change. 
um, recurring revenue is still recurring revenue um, and and it's more valuable to me. So as a buyer. So, so and the other thing we you know, it is the equity piece, too. So you just may want to bring in more equity. We in, in good times, the 10 percent equity minimum might have worked um, and a lot of deals did work. I shouldn't say might have. It really worked. Uh, but now we're looking at a situation where uh, you you don't want catastrophic failure, which would be, you know, defaulting on your debt. Uh, you know, and you want to be able to ride out any bumps or storm or whatever we're, we're facing. Um, it just may take more equity. And I think the nice thing about that is there's still a lot of dry powder, if you will, um, you know, or equity that's interested in investing in this asset class on the sidelines, willing to go into good deals. And I think maybe, maybe even more so now because of the stock market, you know, when you have other asset classes that are not performing well, and you have something that uh, might be a little more insulated from that kind of performance, you may have more equity available. So I think if you if you have a good deal, uh, don't be afraid to raise a little more equity. Okay, that's interesting. So uh, you said before, you know, that 10%, people are always trying to structure their deals right up against the 10% equity minimum. Um, you're kind of implying that that's not going to get it done in this kind of risk environment. There's one thing, we're in a higher rate environment, we're also in a higher risk environment. So banks tend to risk off, right? And want a little bit more equity in deals. You know, if I'm a searcher and I'm underwriting a deal, you know, how much equity, what percent equity should I be thinking about starting to circle even, before, you know, to be safe? You could still do 10%. So I don't want to get that message out that, that you can't. None of the deals will work that way. Some will. Uh, in some cases, I'm, I'm thinking of one right now I'm working on where there's about 11% equity, but, but a 20% seller note. And that sort of offset that. Um, and it's just a really good quality company. But uh, yeah, I think that um, in many cases, you, the deal just may be better with 15 or 20% equity and a 10 to 20% seller note, and then maybe 60% bank debt. You know, maybe that's the cap stack that's just a little bit um, more rational in an environment where we're concerned about what, you know, what the downside may be. And, and then also look at deals. I know everyone looks at an investment uh, for the upside, of course, but don't forget to look at the worst case scenario. And, and when you look at the worst case scenario, what you're testing for is, could I at least still service my senior debt payment? You know, if I can, if in, if the worst happens that I can dream up for this company and I can still service that debt payment, you know, then I'm probably in pretty good shape. Yeah. So I think it's very easy from the searcher, or the buyer perspective, you kind of start the capital stack at my equity, and then you just sort of assume that the rest is going to be debt. But it sounds like what you're saying is that you, you should really start thinking about it. You know, how much debt can I get? And then I got a bridge to a hundred percent above that, above the senior debt. It seems like in the past, you might be able to push to 80% senior debt. Um, but now the banks are probably going to want more like 60 to 70% senior debt. So then you can bridge up to a hundred either with all equity, right? You can put in 20, 30% equity, or you can bridge that gap with some equity and some seller note. Uh, and that's what I want to get to here uh, a little bit, because I have heard all kinds of conflicting structures and what's allowed and what's not allowed on a seller note. Um, can you tell our listeners sort of what you can do, right? There's Because I think there's a lot you can't do. There's a lot, some things you can do when you're talking about structuring your seller note. What is allowed by the SBA? What is allowed by Live Oak Bank? Like, is there a difference? How How should buyers think about using a seller note? So a buyer wants to to get a seller note of, you know, again, at least 10 to 20 percent. Um, now, that can be on standby or they can start making payments, amortizing it right away. So there's no SBA rule that says that seller note can't be amortizing right away other than a very specific situation. So I'll go ahead and describe that specific situation because it, it throws a lot of people off. So there is something I'll call a five and five just to make it easy to remember. SBA says 10% is the minimum equity, but they carve out this little exception that says you could actually do just a 5% equity injection if you have a seller note for the other 5% and that seller note is on full standby, no payments for the life of the SBA loan. So that's a five and five. The reason I never talk about it is I we never use that for third-party buyers. The only time I would use that is for a key manager who's been running the company and buying it from the from their boss, the owner. So don't get confused by that. That's not a good structure for a third party. And if you think about it, why would a seller agree to that? 
for a third party if they weren't selling it to you at too high a price. <laughs> you know, just get 5% less. Uh, so so we, we don't use that structure. So um, if you're not doing the five and five, then you can amortize the, the note right away. And in fact, if you're not doing the five and five, the SBA doesn't say there has to be a seller note at all. They don't have a rule on what percentage it should be. So there's no rigidity there at all. Um, the key with the seller note is really what sort of amortization schedule you're going to use and whether it affects your debt coverage, uh, you know, too negatively for the for the lender. The other little trick to, to know about is if you want to put the seller note on a balloon payment, maybe you want a 10 year amortization or you're able to negotiate a 10 year amortization, but it's going to have a balloon in five. Most lenders, including us, will treat that in our cash flow analysis as a five year amortization. So beware of that. Uh, you're thinking you're going to look at it like it's a 10 year payment and we're going to look at it like it's a five year payment and that might affect your debt coverage. But, um, you know, bottom line is it's, it's subordinate to the, to the bank. Um, and the thing I tell folks, the seller note is your, your best form of economic recourse if there is a misrepresentation in the deal, at least for small companies where, where we really don't have other, you know, we might have the escrow for that for a small period of time. And for a longer period of time, we'll have the note for that. So it's really important to have a note of a fair amount of size so that you would, you know, be able to sort of right size the deal if you had to um, eliminate that note from the cap stack. Because it's easier to just negotiate that they forgive the note than they actually cough up a wire transfer. Well, you're going to have to sue them and that's going to be really expensive and distracting. And then you don't know the outcome and then they still have to cough up the wire. Yep. 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 So yeah. <laughs> seller note is a really nice, it's kind of pseudo escrow, um, especially, right. you know, for the first couple of years, um, assuming there's actually something wrong, like, you know, buy, like you shouldn't plan to just go screw your seller and default on your seller note. Um, but it does provide you some nice protection in case that something had been misrepresented. Um, so Heather, it sounds like there's actually a fair bit of flexibility, at least according to the SBA, on what you can do, leaving the five and five scenario aside. Um, there's actually a fair bit of flexibility as to what type of stuff you can structure, provided that the bank allows it. It sounds like the individual lending bank, you know, in this case, Live Oak wants a 1.5 debt service coverage ratio. It sounds like within the bounds of what the bank is comfortable with, uh, that's going to be your constraining factor, not the SBA. Is that accurate? That's accurate. And then there's one more constraint the SBA is going to throw at you. So in your plain vanilla SBA, uh, seller note, it's pretty simple. But let's say you want to do a seller note that is forgivable or contingent on something. You can do that, but here's the constraint. That it can't be contingent on something that is tied to net new growth. It has to be contingent on something that the company has already, something the company's already done. It could be maintaining a certain EBITDA or going back to 2019 uh, revenue levels, or it could simply be something qualitative like, um, you know, uh, uh, retaining a key customer for two years at a certain level. Uh, or And that has to be a historic level. So it just can't be net new. So growth. the SBA, what they're really trying to prevent you from doing is like a backdoor earnout. That's right. right. Exactly right. Earnouts are not allowed. Rollover equity is not allowed. Any form of seller upside, not allowed. Okay. So it really needs to function more like a stability payment. Assuming everything is good, you pay out the seller note. If things become not good, you stop paying the seller note. That's allowed. But you can't like only pay the seller note if the performance gets better. Right. Then it's an earnout, and that's not allowed. And that's not allowed at all. Okay. Awesome. So that is, I think that's really helpful because I've heard a lot of folks out there saying, oh, the full standby seller note is the only way to do it. Uh, and obviously sellers hate that because a 10 year standby seller note, I mean, that's equity basically, right? That's right. That's the five and five, which we just, you know, just ignore that. We just don't do it hardly ever. Uh, okay. So uh, assuming now your seller in general, of course, wants cash. Uh, but in this environment, it sounds like a well-structured seller note can be a great way to bridge the gap where a little bit less senior debt is available. You can use sub debt from your seller uh, and still try to keep your equity down in that 10 to 15% range if possible. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does two things. You know, it, it, it keeps your senior debt down and it, you know, it, the, it helps the lender when they see that the seller's 
giving, you know, demonstrating that confidence in the deal. They're demonstrating confidence in you running the company, which is really, really important. They, they know better than anyone, of course, and it's demonstrating their confidence in their company going into the, the situation. So nobody wants, uh, you know, to, to find that you've been sold uh, a business that the seller knew was headed into difficult times. A seller like that's not going to carry a note. That's at least the way we think, right? So, so if a seller is willing to carry a sizable note, that gives everybody some more confidence in the deal overall. Yeah. And that sizable note is a junior note. So the seller is willing to carry a subordinated bank gets paid first, kind of uh, essentially unsecured or at least second lien secured position. So he's got to feel like, seller's got to feel like uh, the buyer is not only going to be able to make the bank whole, but also make him whole and also you know grow the business. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a great level of alignment. Um, so we got some great... Great questions on Twitter. One that I wanted to mention, um, Dave Rikuk asked, uh, downside protection. Uh, a lot of people, when they talk about SBA loans, whenever I talk to somebody, the scariest thing is the personal guarantee, right? An SBA loan requires a personal guarantee. It, it is what it is. Uh, it's just part of the package. I think a lot of people, it really freaks them out. Um, so we talked about kind of forgivable seller note as one way to kind of protect your downside. Um, what do you say to people who are really uncomfortable with the PG? How, how as a buyer signing a PG, you know, what actually happens in workout? Like at what point does the bank take your house? You know, like how do you, how should you think about downside as a personally guaranteeing buyer? Yeah, it's always a, it's a tough subject, but it's an important one because no one should sign that if they don't understand exactly what they're getting into going in. So um, what happens in a default situation? First of all, I will tell you this. SBA loans are very generous on giving um, lots of runway to try to correct things. So if we have a borrower who is um, communicating with the bank, this is across all banks, the SBA sort of requires banks to give, you know, deferments and, you know, all kinds of things to kind of help the situation because the last thing the bank or the SBA wants to do is shut down what would, might otherwise be a viable business. That's not what anybody wants to ever see happen. So there's lots of opportunities to correct things and including kind of a short sale situation. So that can actually happen. Maybe the business is viable, but it's over levered um, and it can be sold. And I've definitely seen some of those happen. So lots of things that can be done before we get to the ultimate bad situation, which is default. We can't make the payment. Um, so what happens there is if you've pledged real estate, if real estate, you owned it at the time of the SBA loan and you and you pledged it, uh, it does get liquidated. I know some people have heard the notion that it doesn't. Unfortunately, that's not true. It does. Um, there will be a notice of default filed and you know all the, the pro process will be followed there. Some people will file, file bankruptcy to delay that and some won't bankruptcy is not necessary, but it, you know, maybe for some people, it may be the better choice to just consult your, your own counsel. And then ultimately the bank has got a decision and, and the SBA um, in their liquidation groups, they're going to look at how much the loss is, you know, after they've liquidated any business assets, which by the way, usually there aren't, is not much that comes from liquidating business assets in a default situation, but what they'll try to liquidate everything, whatever the loss is that's left they're going to look at the personal guarantor and whether that person has the means to pay any of that. That means other assets, you know, liquid assets. If they decide no, and in my experience, most people do not. If they if they've gotten to that point, they they wouldn't have gotten to that point if they had more cash to put in uh, earlier. So uh, often the case is that they don't, and so the SBA does something that's called an offer in compromise. So if you want to Google that, there's wealth of information out there about what that looks like, but it's basically a negotiation and it's either going to result in a one-time lump sum of a small amount, whatever the person's means are. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of still on your tab uh, if you ever want to borrow. It is, if you want to borrow again, but it's not like you'll be pursued any further. Yeah. And you, as the, as the borrower, you've pledged a bunch of collateral, you know, house, you know, stock portfolios, all that stuff. Do you have uh, a choice as to which assets get liquidated? Can you say, don't take my house. I can satisfy the loss with this stock portfolio. Here you go. Yeah. So the first thing is the bank, uh, the SBA will never pledge anything, have anything pledged other than real estate. So they would never take a pledge of the stock portfolio or any other cash. Um, so it's not pledged, but you might have it, right? So they could pursue it, um, but not through a direct pledge. 
And yes, you could. Absolutely. That's the whole point of communicating with the bank when things are bad is, is offering something. You know, if you have uh, you want to you don't want to sell the house, uh, but you you have, uh, you know, cash that you can offer instead, you negotiate that. So so it is possible, you know, to avoid things if if you've got other assets that you might be able to kind of bring into the situation. Yep. OK, cool. Uh, well, we've talked a lot about what might go wrong, which I know you really like to talk about uh, what might go right a lot of times. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So I'd love to segue us uh, a little bit into an example, right? So we've, we brought a deal, uh, today. It's, uh, it's kind of an interesting one. I'll put it up on the screen if you're watching us on YouTube. Um, so I want to read this deal and kind of Heather get your take on it from a lender perspective. Um, so I'll read the deal here and then we'll kind of get your take. So this is a B2B e-commerce brand in the outdoor living products vertical, which I take to mean furniture as I read this. So it does $5.3 million in revenue. It does about $1.5 million of EBITDA slash cash flow, and they are asking $6.9 million for it. So back of the envelope, that's about a 4.6x multiple. Uh, and it says the business has been around since 2010, 12 years in business. Um, it says that it is primarily a B2B business. Um, so it says the brand has significant accomplishments in the niche space of outdoor living furniture as a thriving B2B company. They've taken on some major clients, including big box giants, such as target home Depot, Lowe's Walmart, and the shopping channel. They spent more than a decade cultivating the support and appreciation of these major retailers. And they know their customers love the brand's outdoor and gardening products, which are made of decay resistant wood. In fact, their products sell in such high volume for the B2B clients that they have a 100% repeat order rate. That's pretty impressive. Um, this has enabled them to push more aggressively for D2C sales through their Amazon platform, where they now offer 120 SKUs, which give customers plenty of variety when it comes to selecting the right products for their homes. Um, I will keep scrolling down to just hit some of the most important parts here. Uh, all the products are functional, well-designed, attractive, and proven sellers. They are packed unassembled, RTA, which means ready to assemble, with easy to follow assembly instructions, IKEA style, I assume, inside the package, shippable anywhere in North America using a network of 3PLs. 120 SKUs, and they're launching new ones every year. They specialize in one-of-a-kind SKUs. The business was ideally positioned to benefit not just from the rise in demand for outdoor living products, I assume during COVID, uh, but the rise in the use of online means to buy these heavy products. From the start, their products were manufactured to offer homeowners a major advantage by creating outdoor living and small format storage and gardening products because they're made of decay-resistant wood. Their high-volume movers on Amazon have an average order size of $350. Uh, sales are strong throughout the year. They pick up considerably from March through July and then again at the holidays. Um, these products are highly appealing for consumers shopping on Ryan from mid-range wood decay-resistant products for the home. Uh, it says they got two employees. Um, and I have got to assume that most of the stuff is made in China. Um, so Heather, uh, you know, I kind of bring this deal to you, you know, what are some of the first questions you're asking as a lender? Yeah. So the first things I'm, I'm thinking is this is probably a COVID tailwind, this, this current EBITDA. And I want to know historically it's been around 12 years, so we can really look back and see what, what happened before COVID and what happened since I'd be worried now about discretionary consumer spending, affecting them. Um, so I would think that's going to flatten out to possibly shrink a little bit. Um, I am a little concerned about manufacturing of anything in China, just because of the geopolitical situation in the world and shipping. So, uh, you know, uh, ocean shipping. So um, that would concern me lead times. And uh, anytime we've got a deal where there's manufacturing overseas, we're asking about whether there's alternate uh, domestic suppliers in a case like this I'm going to guess maybe not. Uh, so, th so that might be a worry of mine. Um, two employees also kind of catches my attention because it feels like it could just evaporate <laughs> <laughs> pretty quickly. And, uh, and that, that would, uh, that would concern me. A 4.6 doesn't sound bad on a 1.5 million EBITDA, but again, all those other factors, you know, and, and not knowing what the historical numbers are, I'm going to guess it's a little rich. Yep. Okay. So I want to key in a little bit on your thoughts as a lender on kind of COVID bump, trying to underwrite the last two years, right? Here we sit in, in late 2022. Essentially, the last two and a half years have been highly anomalous, right? And it's been anomalous in different ways for every industry, right? You mentioned for this one, you know, a lot of people bought outdoor patio stuff 
over the last two and a half years because everybody wanted an outdoor living space, right? So you've probably got some weirdness or one-timeness on the revenue line, right? You've also got, if this stuff is heavy and it's coming from China, the freight situation has been bonkers, uh, especially in 2021. Uh, it's been you know through the roof from $8,000 containers to $40,000 containers and now back again. Um, so there's some really strange stuff going on, on the, on the cost line too. So how as a lender, do you possibly, you can't go back and underwrite 2018, right? How do you possibly get comfortable with what this business is going to be like going forward? This one's tough, uh, because of all those reasons, I, I definitely would, would think that the, that the demand for this product is going to reduce for the fact that people aren't trapped in their homes anymore. They're back to doing other things. Um, and they might just not be spending as much freight costs. Yes, it went, it went up, it went down, but you know, it still feels like freight is going to be volatile going forward. So just a hard to, it, it means not stable, you know? So anytime a lender looks at something and says, gosh, it's not been stable and I can't really, I don't have visibility into the future very well. It's very hard to put leverage on. And I like to make that point because it, it doesn't mean it's not a good company to invest in. It just may not be a great company to put leverage on um, because leverage is lasts a long time and is stable. You have to pay us every month yeah, yeah. <laughs> regardless of what's going on. Yeah. So um, those are the kinds of things. And then seasonal, I heard that in there too. And so um, it's hard to uh, structure debt around a seasonal business as well, right? We've got um, a lot of things to think about there. Uh, they're they're going to have to still make the minimum payment, but they're also going to have to make their operating, their fixed operating costs. This one doesn't have very much with two people, but uh, you know, in other situations, we're going to look at uh, what's the low period of the seasonality and what happens with their cash position during that period of time. Uh, a lot of times that means we're going to have to supplement that with a line of credit. And we have to do a lot of uh, discussion during diligence to figure out what that right amount is on a line of credit. You never want to go into a deal, into buying a business and uh, have to ask for additional working capital within the first year. That, uh, that sends up red flags at a bank. And, uh, and so you want to do it right the first time. And it, 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 with a seasonal business, that can be challenging to figure out how to do it right. Yep. Because when you've got, if you sell a bunch in the summer, you got to do a load up of inventory, you know, in January, you got to probably pay your supplier to, you know, unless you've negotiated really great net terms, you know, there's going to be a cash outlay and the double whammy, right? Is the cash outlay is during your slow period. Right. So you don't have a ton of cash flow coming in and you got to lay out this big amount of cash. And as you mentioned, the debt payments are the same every month. Um, so Heather, would you look at it and say, you know, the 1.5 debt service coverage ratio is out the window. I, on, on an annual basis, I need a, you know, what a different debt coverage curve, curve or a coverage ratio in the low period. Right. I got to make sure yeah. I underwrite you just to the low period and I don't even care about the high period. Is that how a bank might look at it? We will do that. Yep, absolutely. We we will look at some deals that way. Um, the other thing about the the outlay for the inventory, as you mentioned, let's just say the lead times get longer. We've all talked a lot about supply chain uh, lately and all kinds of different deals, and so we can we can sort of say worst cases our lead times get a lot longer. So now when when are we having to lay out that cash earlier? We're having to hold that inventory longer. All of those things will ultimately compress the margins. Um, and and uh, I think inventory uh, is a really interesting topic in a lot of businesses right now for that very reason. The You can already see that the sellers are starting to carry more inventory for all those reasons. And so the buyer has to really be smart about, well, what does that mean about my future margins then? If that's a permanent situation, we, we at one time thought maybe that was a COVID blip, but, uh, but now we're seeing maybe that holding more inventory is, is a permanent situation for a lot of businesses. Which kind of requires, if you're going to maintain a higher level of inventory, it's not a huge cash delta, but if you have to ramp to a higher level of inventory, that eats a ton of cash in the meantime. Correct. And even maintaining it, I mean, ramping for, for sure, it, it, it's exponential at that point, but maintaining a lot of inventory is expensive. It's warehouse space. You need to invest in maybe better inventory management systems. So you're, you're controlling it better. You have the risk of obsolescence 
you know, something went, you know, out of model or whatever it might be. So there, there's just greater risk in carrying more inventory. That's why the world went to just in time in the first place. But now it looks like, a, you know, with deglobalization, that's not really going to be something we're going to be able to sustain. Interesting. So you mentioned um, a line of credit. So for me, I, you know, when I think of, you know, okay, I'm going to do an SBA loan. That's my senior debt. I've probably, maybe I got a seller note behind it. It was, as we've already discussed, I kind of would assume a line of credit in addition to all that would sort of be off the table. Your, your cap stack's already pretty loaded, but you're shaking your head like, oh no, it's totally possible. How does that work? Like what, how does the bank get comfortable with that? How's it structured? Yeah, good question. That's an important one. So we always provide a line of credit at close. It's, it's available immediately after close. So it's not funded at close. That's the key here. Um, but there's always going to be a line of credit available in all of our deals. So the, how we do it is it's not considered part of the deal financing if it's not funded at close, right? So uh, there's still usually going to be networking capital included in the deal. So there's that that piece is on the balance sheet. There's some liquidity there. But we want to have a line of credit available for the regular operating needs. And it should be a revolver. It's not something where they should draw it down and, you know, use it you know, uh, as permanent working. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So we're analyzing, you know, in each deal, what is the cash cycle of this business? Um, you know, what are the different um, expectations we can have around seasonality, around inventory, all of those things. And that's how we're coming up with the right size of the line of credit. And this is a good time to, to plug the quality of earnings providers for small deals. Um, they do help a lot in determining the working capital needs. They help determine the right amount of networking capital in their work. And they also show us kind of the variance so we can see the size of the line of credit that might be needed. Because once again, we want to we want to err on the side of maybe too big of a line of credit than ever too small of a line of credit. Because you don't want to come back to the well and ask for more, uh, you know, shortly after closing a deal. So quality of earnings providers can be really helpful in getting the lender on board with the line of credit need. Interesting. So it's going to be less about debt service coverage ratio. That's going to be about the funded debt at close. And it's going to be more about kind of what is the cash conversion cycle here? What are the payment terms from suppliers? How fast does it sell? Payment terms from customers, seasonality, you know, all, so it's almost uh, separate from the cert, the month to month debt service coverage. Absolutely. Yep. It is definitely a separate analysis. And, uh, and, but an important one. And also we will even factor in growth. So if you've got growth plans, um, that can impact what size line of credit you're going to need as well. Okay. So I, I think it's worth me saying, and I don't know, Heather, tell me if this is just my experience, but, uh, in talking with you today, this strikes me as a significantly higher level of sophistication than many SBA lenders in the country have. Uh, you know, I've, I've talked to, more SBA lenders than I can count. And a lot of them will say, oh, like no seller note at all, or it has to be full standby or no line of credit. You know, like it seems to me as you talk, you know, or, you know, cap at 5 million hard max. I know Live Oak does kind of that, that plus loan on top of to upsize the SBA facility. It seems like, and I, you did not pay me to say this. <laughs> it's, it seems like, am I right in saying that the lender that you choose for an SBA loan can significantly impact kind of your options for deal structuring? Um, because there's like a base level of what you got to do, but the creativity level is, is much greater than I'd sort of expected to hear above and beyond kind of your vanilla SBA loan. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that because that is really our value proposition is that we're, we want to be part of the deal team, meaning, you know, the second, another set of eyes, not just the second set, but another set of eyes to really help you think about the deal and what is the right way and the best way to structure it. I think you find a lot of SBA lenders in the space today were busy doing real estate loans for most of their career. That's where most S uh, the SBA volume has been done in owner occupied real estate. And a lot of them are still learning. Um, to be honest, how to do uh, small business acquisitions. Uh, and um, they're they're not doing a very sophisticated analysis and they're applying a real estate mindset on one hand, like loan to value. And on the other hand, uh, even worse, I think, is they're applying, here's what the SOP says, the standard operating procedure of the SBA. Here's what the rules say. The rules aren't designed to keep you safe. <laughs> The rules are, I don't, I don't even want to say what they're designed to do because they're, they're very uh, tangled up kind of government rules, you know, 
But uh, just because the rules say so doesn't mean it's a good idea. Um, and within those rules, you can still be somewhat creative um, so that you can structure things in a way that's safe and sound for you and for the bank and, you know, for, for you to really focus on what you're buying the business for, which is developing out your growth plan or your professionalization plan for the, for the company, not being distracted by worries about your, your debt. Yep. Awesome. And I, you know, a, a thing that comes to my mind is, you know, as a seller, right, you generally think of the bank as a buyer relationship, right? The buyer brings their bank, arranges their financing. Um, but I'm thinking about it, you know, from the seller side, bringing a creative lender, you know, like a live Oak bank to the deal is likely to help you get more total consideration as the seller, uh, because things are on the table, like you can put a seller note on it. You know, the buyer doesn't have to use working capital out of the SBA at closed financing. They can get a line of credit. So which leaves more proceeds available to you, the seller. So it seems to me like seller should care about bringing a savvy lender to market also. What's the dynamic there? Like are, are, is live Oak usually brought by the buyer? And they can't talk to the seller because they're buyer's fiduciary. Like, how does it kind of work? You know, or sure, if you're taking a business to market, should you go and be like, Heather, I want you to be the bank for the buyer I don't know? And you know, how does that work? Well, you're touching on a, a subject. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in my head. How am I going to just say it? I'm going to just say it. So here, so there, it's kind of a yeah. This is sort of the underbelly of the SBA business. My practice uh, with my partner, Lisa Forrest, is a buyer-focused practice. We get all of our business uh, as a buyer advocate and on the buyer deal team. We don't get our business from brokers or sell side. Most of the SBA world does get their, get their leads there. And I'll tell you, it's, I'm not going to say it's all bad. It can be good like you described. It could be like, hey, let's bring a good lender in. But unfortunately, what it's become is this. The, the sellers, brokers often, not all, are getting paid a referral fee from the bank for the buyer's loan. So uh, it's not necessarily a relationship that is aligned with the buyer, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so it, it uh, unfortunately, that is most of the most of the deal volume is done that way. Um, and I think it's it sort of does the buyer. I think it does everybody a little bit of a disservice because um it doesn't bring the alignment that uh, that would bring about these more creative solutions and kind of really thinking things through and structuring things in a sound way. It, and it creates a lot of friction and it wastes a lot of time. So um, I'm a big advocate of if you're a buyer, this is the reason we have the channel the way we do. If you're a buyer, select your bank on your own, uh, not through, you know, the seller's broker. He's the seller's broker is representing the seller. And when you negotiate, you are on different sides. I mean, you can be collaborative and there are great brokers out there. Um, so I don't want to say that they're they're all not good. They are uh, many very good ones and very um, you know high integrity. But there are others who who are just looking to get the deal sold at the highest price. And again, maybe they're applying a real estate mindset rather than a safe and sound kind of uh, uh, quality approach. So buyers, I'd say buyers beware, and um, <clears throat> you know select your deal team, whether it's your lender or your lawyer or your QV provider, such that they're. Uh, aligned with you in terms of uh, their their interests and that they can provide quality um, you know feedback to you on the deal it's really important that's really interesting when you think about the incentives at play right so if you're if you're buying a business right and seller has already got a bank it's it's SBA pre-approved which you've said on prior podcasts is not a thing uh, <laughs> but if it's if it's SBA pre-approved what that really means is seller has a relationship with bank or seller broker has a relationship with bank and they're going to make a fee on you borrowing from that bank that's what that really means so you as buyer i mean i would think you know especially in a competitive process you may have the ability to bring a more creative bank a more creative lender and say, no, 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 this is my lender. But because my bank is part of the deal team and they're going to give me a line of credit after close and finance a little bit differently, I might be able to pay more for the same asset, you know, assuming it's still pencils, right? Because if you've got all of the other people bidding against you using seller's lender, right, who may not be as creative, they're only going to be able to go so high. Right, they, or they might not be able to use a seller note, or they might not be able to, you know, have a line of credit after close. You could use as buyer an aligned bank, you know, as a weapon to win the deal against the other bidders. Is how I'm thinking about it. 
I don't, you can definitely use an aligned bank as a, a absolutely on your side to win a deal. And I think instead of it may, meaning that you could pay more, it means um, greater certainty of close, to be quite honest. This is the key, right? So if I'm aligned with the seller's broker, I am, I have less incentive to ask hard questions up front, right? I, I don't want to make him mad uh, or, you know, whatever. I don't want dis- to disrupt that uh, relationship. So I'm going to let my underwriters do that. And that's going to be four to six weeks down the road. And this is a very common experience for a lot of borrowers. So I, the salesperson, I'm not really vetting the deal too hard up front because of that relationship. If you work with a buyer's lender, uh, that's the opposite. We are we don't want to waste our time. We don't want to waste our buyer's time. We're going to ask all the hard questions at the front so that now we know we actually do really like this deal. And if we win this, this LOI, we will get it funded. So so something that we do is we, we pre-vet pre-LOI deals for our buyers. That's part of our process. Um, they're bringing us pre-LOI uh, deals. They put it together in templates that we taught them how to put together and we're giving them feedback. So that's a, it, it's very different from if I'm a seller's lender where I wait for something to be under LOI before I really spend much time on it. I'm actually spending time before that to make sure it looks like something that uh, is going to be a fit for us. So I think that's an advantage. Absolutely. Awesome. That makes a ton of sense. Well, Heather, I got to wrap this up because we could go on all afternoon. Um, but I love want to give you a chance at the end. How can people, if they were entertained or interested or their interest is piqued by this episode, what's the best way to get in touch with you and start a conversation with you? Just reach out to me at Live Oak Bank on our website um, and uh, register for our office hours or send me an email, heather.enderson at liveoak.bank. Awesome. Um, And you guys, I think you have uh, office hours occasionally, right? We have an office hours every Wednesday and every Thursday. It's four buyers and we walk you through the frequently asked questions on Wednesdays. And on Thursdays, we actually walk you through the templates, the, the cash flow model, the M&A questionnaire and the deal memo that we use to pre-vet deals. So yes, you're welcome to join us any Wednesday and Thursday. Awesome. And where can people find you on Twitter? We've got a lot of Twitter listeners. I'm Heather Anderson on Twitter, at Anderson Heather, I believe. And uh, yes, I, I love uh, I love Twitter. I love talking to you all there as well. Awesome. Well, Heather, thanks so much for being with us. You are now my three-time favorite guest, number one, two, and three. No offense to our other guests, but this I love learning, nerding out uh, on all the, de- the deal structuring stuff. So thank you for being here. It was really great. Thank you very much.